Welcome to the Life Well Done Podcast. Optimizing physical, mental, and emotional being. Challenge plus change equals growth. Growth, 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 growth. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Life Well Done Podcast. Super excited about my guest today. Um, before we get into that, though, I want to remind you all that you can find uh, the website at lifewelldone.com. It'll have your training needs if you are looking to improve your fitness, uh, your overall health, get stronger, you have athletic performances uh, that you have goals with. Uh, please let me know. Let's see how we can help you out there. Uh, just give you an opportunity to live your best life through the realm of fitness. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at lifewelldone, uh, where I'm open to having conversations and, and just seeing what's going on. So please uh, follow that and hit up the website. Let me know what you think, what you'd like to see. Um, but yeah, let's get into this podcast. Today, my guest is John Allen. He's a veteran Navy SEAL. Um, he served time in uh, uh, Afghanistan. Uh, he's also the CEO and founder of Elite Meat. It's a company he has developed to help place elite military personnel uh, transitioning back to the civilian life into elite job, jobs and uh, help them with that transition. Uh, John is absolutely motivating. He's incredibly articulate and just absolutely I, I, I cannot find the words quite yet to sum this up, but um, be sure to find him at elitemeet.us. That is not at .com. Um, and then you can also find him at uh, John B. Allen 416 on Instagram. He is super active. He's got daily posts. But uh, John is an absolutely amazing person. I am so grateful for the time that uh, he gave me today. And I'm, I'm really hoping that this motivates you and gives you some kind of concept of what, what an elite, uh, what a Navy SEAL goes through. And then also throughout that podcast, we, we have the opportunity to help support what he is doing for our veterans and, and returning home. Um, so be sure to subscribe, like, rate, review, and then also go over and find John on, on his social media platforms and see if there's any way that you can support it um, and help him out. But if nothing else, He's just incredibly motivating, challenging uh, in your mindset. Um, I am absolutely thrilled about the way this podcast went. I'm super excited for you all to hear it. So keep in touch. Let me know what you think and enjoy. One, we are now recording and John Allen is joining me. He's a uh, retired a veteran Navy SEAL um, and also the founder and CEO of Elite Meat, uh, where he helps uh, place elite military uh, personnel uh, back into uh, civilian life and into, I guess what we would call elite uh, jobs. So John, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your service. Super excited to have you here. Um, if you can just give the guests of life well done a brief history of where, you know, how you got here and I'm sure we'll break this whole thing down, but um, I know you said you're in Virginia right now, right? Yep, and uh, I'm very appreciative to be on your podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. I was, we were just talking a little bit offline here uh, about how I found you and how I, I, and I always feel drawn to military, uh, current and, and retired. Uh, there's just something about the way they carry themselves and their lives and understanding that there's, there's a bigger purpose to just kind of the day-to-day -day grind. So, um, and in your case, being a Navy SEAL, I can only imagine what, what that whole thing uh, sets up to be, but um, I guess maybe we start there. Um, what drew you to the Navy SEALs? I know you had mentioned that you had a degree and you decided you were going to enlist. Uh, a little bit of homework I've done on you, you were planning on going to law school. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, I would say on, on a bit of a whim, though, uh, I, I was someone that did not have my my life together. Um, and, you know, well, so brief history, like you asked for, I, I grew up south of Boston in a town called Quincy, Mass. You know, grew up a diehard Red Sox fan, played baseball. Uh, you know, at high school, I was a very so-so student. I come from a family that's extremely well-educated and successful. And I think I started to notice around my senior year of high school that I was just totally mediocre uh, relative to my, my family. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I actually, I wasn't even going to apply to college, but my mom basically applied for me and got me into school. And I ended up going to school out in Western Mass at, at the University of Massachusetts. I continued my so-so um, academic performance. And so it, I, I basically had identified that I was a very mediocre person, but didn't do anything about it. I was just kind of like, you know, like feeling bad for myself. And I actually um, ended up meeting two Navy SEALs. Uh, oddly enough, my mom, who is a librarian, she one day, like halfway through college, she was like, yeah, I actually can introduce you to some Navy SEALs if you're interested in talking to them. And I'm like, how do you know Navy SEALs, mom? <laughs> but she did. And uh, I ended up meeting these, these, these Navy SEALs. And for context, I had talked a little bit about wanting to join the military. And that's where that suggestion came from. And uh, when I met with these guys, you know, I, I had all the same thoughts about Navy SEALs that, frankly, a lot of people do now which is, you know, it's this impressive job. They're like superhumans. I mean, there's like TV shows about them. And I was totally like, I thought it was really cool that I was meeting Navy SEALs to begin with. But when I met them, it, it was like I had found my calling. I mean, that's, that's really what it felt like. I, I was meeting people that, you know, they had earned the respect that I was giving them and felt for them. And they did something that was really impactful and important. And they were just the coolest guys. And I, you know, I spent a couple of days just shooting with them up in, up in the Northeast. And, uh, you know, I, I came back from that trip actually feeling like I had found my calling and really specifically, it wasn't just that, wow, they're so cool and they have so much respect. It was that, you know, whatever they had done to that point in their life before becoming seals, it didn't really matter. It was like, you know, they used to do these things over here, but like really what they did is they became Navy SEALs. And I liked the idea of kind of rewriting my history a little bit because I had been thinking about how mediocre I was doing in life. I hadn't figured out what was next. And it was like college was just kind of blase for me. And so discovering the SEAL teams um, for me felt like my calling. And, and, and the reason it felt like my calling is, you know, anybody really, I mean, I'm generalizing, but just about anyone can go try out for the SEAL team. I mean, you got to be American and you got to be like healthy, but the standards for getting a shot at, you know, SEAL training, which is this course called basic underwater demolition SEAL training, uh, this long selection course, just to get a shot, virtually anyone can go. It's very accessible, but at the same time, you know, 80 to 90% of the people that go to this course don't make it. They quit or they don't pass the test or they get hurt, whatever it is. And so while being accessible, it's also very exclusive. And so I saw this as my pathway to, um, you know, rewriting my history, or I should say starting a new history that I hoped that if I could just put my head down and, and get through the selection course and all the training and become a SEAL, that not only would that job really mean something. I mean, like in terms of my life, it would have meaning and purpose, but all the stuff that I hadn't done, 
Like I was a good baseball player, but I didn't practice enough. So I kind of dropped it. I could have been a good student. I certainly had the aptitude for it, but I didn't try. And it was like all this stuff. It was like, instead of it being, you know, John's story is a guy that could have done a lot, but didn't and kind of squandered it. It could be kind of a funny anecdote if I became a Navy SEAL. It'd be like, do you remember that time John was that total screw up? Oh man, that's so funny because now he's made something of his life. And I love the idea of taking charge of my life. So I really, when I discovered the SEAL teams, it really felt like a calling for me. And it, 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 honestly, I didn't have much to lose. It was like, I'm going to go do this. I, I felt confident that I wasn't going to you know, quit or drop from the program. I just didn't know if I could make the cut. I literally didn't know if I had it in me to pass all the tests and all that. But you know, I was fortunate enough to, to make it through. And, and sure enough, I became a Navy SEAL. And, and I'm, I'm very pleased that I did. Uh, that's that's absolutely amazing. That's uh, so much of that resonates with me. When I uh, when I left high school, I went out to college, and I really didn't plan on playing hockey. And uh, for the record, played very like mediocre club hockey, but nevertheless, we was competitive and um, ended up playing. But when I left, when I my parents dropped me off at school, I looked and I was like, "I'll see you in four years." I'm just going to school. I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, and then I kind of got bounced around and I had some injuries, moved home and thought maybe med school and really had a hard time figuring out what it was that I wanted to do. And I guess mediocre is, is kind of that there's that dream of not being mediocre, of being someone that's really in control of their life and, and really trying to make something of themselves, regardless of like who's looking and uh, you just want to feel proud of it. And so I think that's something that resonates with me where I'm, I'm, always trying to find that thing and, and impact the world uh, in a positive way. So I can, I can appreciate that. Good on you for seeing that at such a young age uh, and, and to be able to really start to take control of it. And I mean, God, did you ever, would, by going to Navy SEAL, but um, you mentioned something in there. I actually just writ, wrote this uh, question down. When you made that decision, there was a fear that you weren't going to be good enough for it. How do you overcome that? You know, this is, this is a question that I get a lot. Um, about really what, what it boils down to is like, how did you know you were ready? Uh, and then how did you kind of handle the fact that, you know, that staring you in the face when you go down the, the Navy SEAL tryout kind of route is the statistics that say you're not going to make it. I mean, lots of very qualified people go to this course five times a year. You know, they've passed all the tests to get there. They're in the best shape of their lives. They, if you talk to them, they'd sound super motivated. They want to be there. I mean, it takes a lot of courage just to even raise your hand to go. I mean, it's not a short, it's not a short amount of time that you got to suffer through just to even start the course. Right. So there's a lot of, a lot of people that are qualified that don't make it. And so when you're thinking about going, the, the change for me, and it didn't happen at the time, but looking back, I think this was a kind of a pivotal moment in my life is a lot of people, when they think about, like a big audacious goal, whatever it is for them. It could be being a Navy SEAL. It could be being a doctor. It could be just graduating college, whatever it is, whatever is a big, a big, but somewhat attainable goal for you. Um, I think a lot of people, they look at it as things that other people can do, but they can't that like in virtue of it being, Oh, well, it's me. I can't do this amazing thing, but everybody else is able to do it. Like you, what I was able to do is I wanted to be a Navy SEAL so badly. And now I couldn't necessarily articulate all the things that made me want to be a Navy SEAL, but it was like I had found this thing that spoke so clearly to the type of person I was, and it really resonated with me. 
that I began to believe that I could be a Navy SEAL. I actually believed that that could be a reality for me. It didn't feel, so what, this is when I'm thinking about it and I'm researching it. I'm, I haven't left it. I'm just thinking about it. I actually believed, and I didn't say it, and I didn't tell people I believed it, but I believed I could be a Navy SEAL. I could see it. I could, I could envision it. Now, there is a lot of things that can go wrong. I cannot, you know, pass a, a test. You know, there's a lot of test gates throughout the entire pipeline that plenty of very qualified, motivated, tough people don't pass. Um, I could get hurt. There's a lot of things that I have, you know, I guess limited control over. But I went into the pipeline knowing I wanted to do it, genuinely, 100%, like, I know this is what I want to do, and I could see it in my head. I didn't know if it was actually going to happen, but I believed that there was some truth in me actually being a SEAL. And what that did for me is when I thought about the attrition rate, I actually didn't really attribute it to me. I just kind of was like, you know what? I'm an exception because I'm someone that understands that this is a life that I can attain. And so I actually just kind of wrote off all the stuff that rational people can't write off, which is, well, what's your plan B? What's your backup plan? Because there's a pretty good chance you're not going to make it. Well, for me, I, I completely ignored all the stuff that rational people thought. And I went pure irrational. I said, this is, the, this is what I want to do. I believe this is what I want to do. And I can see it. And so when I left, the only concerns I had, frankly, were, I really hope I don't get hurt. And when I said, I don't know if I'll make it, I'm talking about the test case like the actual thing that required talent to get through. I didn't know if I could do that, but I knew I was going to put my head down and do, and do whatever I could. I wasn't going to quit on what I wanted. I just had, there's a lot of things I couldn't control and I was willing to accept those things because I could see the vision. I believed I could be a seal and I just went in with my heart and you know what? Sometimes that is the right approach. That's uh, that's incredible that uh, the power of belief in self and uh, what you're working for is, um, you, 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 man, you are touching some heartstrings for me right now. Um, that, that question of like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, um, and then something speaking to you, I don't know, I've had that, that moment quite yet, but I can appreciate what that means. And I've, I feel like I've seen multiple people go into that and regardless of it's being, like you said, like Navy SEAL or doctor or graduating college, um, that belief in self is, is the driver of anything. Um, and that, that's pretty incredible that you just, I guess it was it the respect was it what they were doing what what was it that really made you believe that what was the moment that turned and you said this is it so I think that so I actually I get asked this question too which is kind of like what if what drew you to the Navy SEALs I mean there's lots of there's lots of ways you can serve your country there's lots of special operations units what what was it about the Navy SEAL teams that really hooked you in right um, and I mean, I would say that up front, I actually had the opportunity to meet Navy SEALs. And it's amazing what that kind of weird sense of loyalty we all have when like you've met someone that's doing it. All of a sudden you're like, that's what I want to be because it, it's real. It's, no, it's not theoretical. You can point to specific people you've met. And I think that was part of it that I had a, I could actually see a real Navy SEAL. And I was like, that's what I want to be. But um, I would say that while this is kind of controversial, I don't think it really is. But, you know, to the audience, I'm sorry if you're offended, but, you know, Deciding to be a Navy SEAL, it, 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 there's no way it can just be about patriotism. You know, like if I, if I decide what I want to do is serve my country and what I want to do is like go to war to defend my country, well, I can, I can join the infantry. I can, I can, I, there's lots of war fighting units that don't require going through two years of 
really intensive, rigorous, and painful training. You know what I mean? Like it, it can't just be, well, I wanted to serve my country and I wanted to fight for my country. That, that is something that mattered to me, no doubt. I mean, I remember when the towers fell, as I'm sure you do. I remember feeling like, oh my goodness, we're at war. I wanted to be a part of, you know, the, the fighting force behind our country for sure. But again, there's lots of options for that. I think that what I have seen in my experience in the SEAL teams and, and in seeing the people that are successful in going through that course, you, I mean, men, frankly, are drawn to things that test them. Everybody wants to be tested at some point in their life. They don't know how, they don't know how to articulate it necessarily, but SEAL training really represented like an opportunity to test my metal. And, and it, it didn't even matter who saw it. It was like, I wanted to know that I was somebody that could hang with the best, that had it in me to, you know, do more than everybody else, to just show that I had this grid and determination and, I was really drawn to, frankly, the challenge of being a Navy SEAL. And that in some ways, it wasn't the respect of being a Navy SEAL that I was really seeking. That was, I mean, if I finished the course, I'd, I'd get that. It was that I was gonna set a lofty goal. And by the way, you can't really hide it to your friends and family if you're gonna go try to be a Navy SEAL because the process is long enough, it's interesting enough, people are gonna be drawn to it, that people are kind of aware you're in the pipeline. Um, I liked the idea of setting a target that most people would be too scared to set and then achieving that. It, it almost was like everything after that was great, but to demonstrate that I was not the guy that kind of was mediocre in my whole life. And that's all I could accomplish that if I really wanted to, I could set a target that was way higher than most people are comfortable setting. And I was going to do it publicly so that my friends and family knew I was doing it. And then I was going to go do it. And I loved loved the idea of on the back end of that, if I was successful at that, not only would I be doing a job that I was proud of, that had real purpose, and by the way, would be serving my country and going overseas and fighting the good fight. But more than that is I would have demonstrated for the first time in my life that I can set huge goals and I can meet them. And that trumps all of the mediocrity in my life. It demonstrates that I have that inside of me and that when I've been tested, you know, I was successful. And so I really liked the idea of that. That was what drew me in. That's, that's amazing. Uh, there's gotta be, I mean, just even getting through some of it, I mean, getting through boot camp and then take, taking paths over to, to buds and everything. Like there's gotta be this continuous building of confidence in yourself where you just like, uh, you gain, you gain the confidence through every struggle that you start to, you know, persevere through that you face the adversity head on and, uh, what choice do you really have at that point? But that's um, the mental fortitude that that must take is got to be amazing just to keep your voice quiet from questioning yourself. But um, did you train for this before you went? Yes, I did. Um, you know, I, I have said in a couple of posts on my Instagram account, something to the effect of, you know, I was so obsessed with being a Navy SEAL that had I not even prepared for training, that I could have been successful. I think there's an element of truth to that. I think it's a little bit extreme. I think that, uh, you know, SEAL training, it, the, honestly, if you look at any um, special operations selection program, uh, which, you know, usually have very high attrition rates and are very physically demanding, the people that graduate them oftentimes say that it's all mental or, you know, 
90% mental and, and 10% physical. And from the outside looking in, all you see is how over the top physical it is. Sure. I mean, buds, one of the weeks of the, you know, six months you're there, you're up the entire time training continuously around the clock. Yeah. That's just one week. You know what I mean? So like there is, so, but to an insider, um, this is the way I look at it. And I, and I didn't know this before, but this is why it's so important to be in good shape for this stuff. The way that these courses test you is they take you physically to a level where you don't have anything left that everybody in the class, even though they feel like they themselves are way more beat up than everybody else. Cause at the end of the day, we're all very egotistical. We believe that somehow we're different than everybody else in the world. So while in training, when it gets really, really, really physically hard, when you actually are at your, your limit, you've, you've maxed out, that's when the test begins, if that makes sense. Sure. They, that's the whole point of the program is they're going to get everybody to that point on a very regular basis, and then they're going to see what you're made of. But in order to be competitive and make it through this program, you have to have some semblance of you know, being in shape so that you can even survive to the point where they're testing your mental capacity. So they use physicality to test your mind, if that makes sense. Sure, so I even though I would say that it's 90% mental, that 10% of physicality is the only thing that you can really control going in. And so they have some standards that you need to be able to hit. I think it's like, well, there's a, a, there's a PST you need to take. It's a physical screening test that you take before getting the opportunity to go to SEAL training. And it consists of, it's basically a little triathlon. You do a 500 meter swim, and then you do right into max push-ups in two minutes, max sit-ups in two minutes, max pull-ups with no time limit, and then right into a mile-and-a-half run. And, um, you know, there's some basic standards you got to hit, but most people that are successful at field training, they blew those scores out of the water. I mean, like, basically imagine a triathlete. That's, that's pretty close to what a successful SEAL looks like. It's somebody that has endurance and who can move their own body weight around really effectively. And so when I was training, um, and there's lots of guides for how to train, but I was really aiming to be lean, have lots of, you know, endurance, be, a, be an endurance athlete, and my weight should be very simple to move around so that when things got really hard, you know, I wasn't the most destroyed person at Buzz. I was just with the rest of the group who were maxed, but now it was time to test my mind. Yes, that's... Uh... Man, yeah, you're right. That is that is mental because at some point, even in your training to get there, you got to be thinking like, "Oh my gosh, what am I doing right now?" But uh, I guess the the drive or the why, the belief in what you wanted to do, uh, kind of overrides that and keeps you moving forward. But um, I'm sure that even in training, that's this really nothing you can do to um, replicate what buds is and and what the process of becoming a Navy SEAL really looks like. Um, you know, well, actually, might I interject quickly? I did a post yesterday uh, that kind of talked about the difference between training really hard uh, before you go to SEAL training and then when you're actually in it. And the biggest difference that I think people oftentimes overlook, and, and this is me generalizing pretty massively because there are probably people that don't do this, but, um, you know, I would, I was a, I was a very intensely physically fit person before I went in. Uh, way more so than I am now. I mean, like I was a, I was in the best shape of my life before I went to Buds. Uh, so that's that's still training. Um, but when I was training, I would go out and do these epic workouts. But then I'd come home and like, I'd have a nice warm bed. 
I'd have homemade food. I'd have my friends. I'd have, you know, video games, my computer, all the kind of comforts I had. The most difficult thing about training is not the actual evolution itself. No individual physical evolution is all that. Oh, let me be clear. They're hard, but there's not one that's like, whoa, that's the one that was way harder than the rest. They're all hard. They're all physically demanding. It's how do you do when you get progressively less sleep, you get hurt, you're always sore, and mentally you're like, oh my goodness, I just finished this horrible day of training, and it's only two weeks into a six-month-long program, and I'm going to sleep for maybe two, three, four hours tonight, I'm going to get up and I'll do it all over again, and I'm still going to be months away from the finish line. It's, it's, it's all the stuff that I'll be honest, there's no way you're doing that before you ship off. You're not living in a tent in your backyard soaking wet just to replicate training. You're going out and you're training, but in the best of conditions. And the thing that you cannot replicate safely, realistically, is that you, you have the worst conditions. And they're deteriorating. They're bad and they deteriorate for the duration of the course. That is the hard part about it. That's, that's wild. Um, so I guess that, what is the – so you're going through this training – What's the thought process? Obviously, you have this goal in mind, and you're, you are absolutely committed to it, and you're driven to it, and that's, that's your why, essentially. But what does the self-talk look like? And, and, and even in that, can that, is that something that you think can be developed? Is that something that was in you the whole time that you just had to uncover? And uh, do you think that there's a way that – a particular way for people to find it short of going to the Navy SEALs? Uh, I mean, like, obviously, you know, you kind of mentioned something where people want to be tested. What are there other ways of uncovering it if that's what you do believe? I think that so in order to taking SEAL training um, specifically, so the 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 hardest part of training um, is the six months that you're in basic underwater demolition SEAL school, i.e. buds. And now, granted, there are phases. Literally, there are phases of buds, but there are like sections to training that are harder than others. But collectively. If you looked at the um, entire pipeline, which is almost two years, if you include kind of some buffer on both sides, um, the, the, the hurdle that everyone must get through that really is what dictates whether you're going to be a seal or not is BUDS. And so BUDS is, I was kind of describing it as it's long. It's six months of selection. And meaning like every day you're kind of on the cusp. You know, you, you, every day you got to put out just to stay. And the people that last, you know, that are successful and do graduate, you're almost forced to learn how to, or like you said, uncover your ability to do this, which is compartmentalize. So when people think about self-talk, and certainly people that run long distance races are probably masters of this, and they've uncovered it through training and doing the races, is at some point it gets really hard and you have a lot more to go. That's the self-talk that's really important. But in BUDS, your race is six months long. It's not a let's just survive until the end of the day, then it ends. If you look at BUDS as a whole when it's really hard, like early on when it's very shock and awe and it's really hard and it's designed to feel almost insurmountably difficult, the people that start thinking, holy cow, there's, there's months more of this. It's too much to handle mentally. Mm. And those people leave. The people that are able to say, this is so much, I can only focus on literally right now. 
Otherwise, I'll go crazy. I'll, I'm, I'm going to be stressing and in pain, and I'm just going to think about right now. But I, I can't even allow myself to think about the fact that this is months before I'm going to be done. And that's even if I just pass everything. I might fail something halfway through and get kicked out anyways. So there is a bit of a you're, you're forced to realize that that is actually the only way to approach buzz, which is you have to look at it in terms of little tiny segments. Like over the course of the day, you're training all day. This is really the early parts of buzz. You know, it's back to back to back evolutions of really difficult things. And the only way you can stay focused, I should say, is if you just worry about what's happening right now. And so I had no idea. Actually, that's not entirely true. I ran a marathon uh, on a whim without training for it when I was 19. Um, and it was the first time that I saw what happens when things get really hard physically and your mind starts to tell you it's time to stop doing this because this is awful, but you still got miles to go. And now I, I was able to finish the marathon. And I guess in that sense, I learned that I had this ability to kind of talk myself, have that positive self-talk, break it down into like, you know, get to that next thing over there that I've identified as my next check mark, get yeah. the next mile, you know, that whole thing. I was able to do that. The buds is a much bigger scale. Um, but I think that what happens is, is when you go to buds, people learn that they have that in them, but they don't necessarily know they had it in them before. And I do think it's something that, you know, with repetition, you get better at it. Like you just get to the point where your mind doesn't even go to, I have so many more months of this. Your mind goes to, man, at the end of the next 30 minutes, we get to eat. I'm so excited about eating in 30 minutes. You know, like that's just what naturally happens. That's what human beings do. They like adapt. So to answer your question, I don't have a sense of, you know, what would test you or who, what would test others. But I think we all know there are things that scare us that we still want to do. And those are the tests in life. Those are the things we need to seek out and do, because if you are excited to do something that scares you, that's a test. And I think that in order to be successful at it, most things that are scary and hard usually take a while to do, or they're big, like insurmountable seeming. You need to understand that it's only when you're in it and doing it that you'll, you'll kind of see whether or not you have the ability to compartmentalize. But if you never take the leap and you never try it and you just allow yourself to rationalize that, well, I was, you know, it's not a good time or I'm too old or this is going on in my life. You do all the things that like 99% of the population does and you'll never even know. But if you throw yourself in headlong into something that scares you that you want to do still, you might just realize that you have this gift, which is the ability to compartmentalize. And all of a sudden the whole world opens up to you. Like I finished being a seal. And now when I think about building a business and the rest of my life, everything feels accessible to me. Because I know that I have the capacity to throw myself into difficult things and make it work. I might fail, but that's not going to stop me from trying it. I think that that's where people get hung up. You get to jump into it to find out if you have it inside of you. That is, uh, that is incredibly profound. Um, I mean, like, I feel like I, you literally just set my mind into a oblivion thinking about life and, and how do you apply that concept to obviously not everybody can go be a Navy SEAL and um, uh, but you can still apply that concept to life in general. Like you said, there's, there's plenty of things that scare people all the time that they immediately, I'm guilty of this too, but they immediately say, I can't do it. So you don't really even recognize what it is that you want to do with your life because your first thought is I can't do it or that's, you know, everybody else can do it, but I can't, um, which is, which is really a, a, a 
the opportunity for you to say like, well, that's the exact thing I probably need to try um, and start to uncover those. Will, Will Smith has, has an awesome video of when he goes skydiving and you can just Google Will Smith skydiving. And it's very clear as he's talking about it, he's talking to a group and he has, you know, the video on the back that he's about to hit play on. And it's the video of him jumping out of the plane. And he's basically talking to this group of people about, his experience skydiving, which he had never done before. And it's very clear in the way he's talking about it. He's kind of building it up that he was profoundly scared to jump out of a plane that he kind of had this idea the night before everyone's so pumped about it. We're going to go do this. And then the next day he gets up and he's like, I don't know if we're still doing this, but I don't know if I want to do it anymore. <laughs> and they end up going and it's like, you get in the plane. And I mean, I've done, I've jumped out of a plane and I was nervous about it. I know the feeling it's like on the, on the way up, you realize once you're you know, halfway up that like the way I'm getting to the ground is jumping out of the plane. And so he kind of articulates this awesome image of them going up to altitude and jumping out of the plane. And so, you know, obviously the, the, the takeaway, what it ends up being is he loved it. It was like this amazing experience and he loved skydiving. And what he says is so simple, but it's so true, which is the best things in life or on the other side of fear, that Will could have not jumped out of the plane, and he could have just said, well, I'm going to make up an excuse that I'm going to tell myself it's really true, that actually I feel sick today, or let's do this next week and then blow it off. There's a host of things you can do, you know, but if you, if you just do it, you actually teach yourself that there are some amazing things that you actually, you're, you are, all the time we have signals that we want to do things, the stuff that scares us. That's the stuff that we need to go after. And like skydiving happens to be a great example because I think a lot of people are scared at the idea of jumping out of a plane. But the people that jump out of a plane are the first people to say, what an amazing experience that was. It's such a common theme that it's like, that's what we expect to happen. That I'm gonna be scared, I'm gonna jump out of the plane and then I'm gonna be like, wow, I wanna do that again. Everybody talks about skydiving that way. But at the same time, those same people that say that are like, well, I, I never wanna do this thing over here. I don't wanna give a public speech. <laughs> or, you know, I don't want to be a Navy SEAL. It's the same concept. But you got to remember, like Will said, the absolute best things in life are on the other side of fear. I was scared of going to Navy SEAL training. I knew I wanted to go. But I was equally scared. I was literally scared of the entire experience. I mean, it's dangerous training into a dangerous lifestyle. There's a lot of things to think through. But for me, it was like I saw a poster that had a picture of a Navy SEAL uniform with nobody in it. It was just like the actual dress blues with, you know, the trident and the ribbons and stuff. And it was like, you know, do you have what it takes to wear this uniform? And then like next to it was a poster that was like the best things in, the best things in life are the hardest to get. And I was like, man, like I'm scared, but I want to do it. And it's the best decision I ever made because it also taught me that that's how life's supposed to work. And so I know you're going to ask it later, but a life well done is probably one where you're going after the things you're scared of, because that is the stuff that matters. It's the stuff that your brain is telling you matters the most to you. And at some point you're either going to, you're going to convince yourself that you can't do it and you won't do it and you'll die and you'll have regrets or you're going to do it. And even if you fail, I mean, thank goodness you at least tried because you're going after the things that your, your whole being is telling you to do. Holy smokes. You are motivating. Uh, <laughs> You got me over here ready to go with Navy SEAL training. Um, that's uh, you, you kind of mentioned, um, not kind of, you definitely mentioned what the, you know, you go into this as dangerous training, but it's a, it's a dangerous career, uh, albeit potentially a short career 
in terms of what we generally think of as careers, but you're, you are, you're married, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of questions to that. Uh, how do, okay. Number one, after you do, uh, get your trident, how does training change for, for an ABC? So there's a, there's a very distinct change, uh, when you go from training to become a Navy SEAL and then doing the job because the, the training to become a Navy SEAL statistically, it's unlikely you're going to become a SEAL, just pure statistics. Sure. And so it's almost heretical to go into it thinking about what's after or, or what's going to happen once I get my trident. Like the, it really can't be part of your thinking because that's way too far. It's too, you know, cart before the horse. And so nobody's considering what life's going to be like at a team. It's like, I'll figure it out when I get there. I got to focus on getting to the next 30 minutes to get the chow. I got to, I got to survive buds. I got to like get my trident first. And so not a lot of consideration goes into what team life is like. And I think also there's an element of you don't want to be presumptuous. You don't want to act like you have it in the bag. You can be a seal. And you really only start thinking about like actual Navy seal life really at the latter end of buds, but not even uh, really in the advanced training you go through, you start thinking about it. But the reason I'm kind of saying all this is you get into this mindset of if you're successful in training in those first kind of two years, um, you begin to believe that your job as a Navy SEAL is training. And it's distinctly not that. There is a huge barrier to entry to get to go do the job. The job is not training. You go through the training to do the job. And so I think there's a, there's a moment of clarity when you wrap up you're basically just about two years of training and then you go to a team and you're like, Oh my God, I'm surrounded by all these like combat veteran Navy SEALs that they're years removed from the training pipeline. They've been deploying to combat zones and like doing that while I was like in San Diego, like complaining about training. You know what I mean? Like you realize that the world you've now entered into is, war fighting culture you're entering a world that the job ultimately is to go fight wars and to not do it from the back yeah and so i think that when you make the jump to being a seal you try to envision what that's like and you try to think through what that's like and there's a lot of things that are definitely the same the camaraderie you feel with your classmates in training it definitely carries over to um you know when you're at the team and, you know, the level, the training continues. I mean, when you're at a team, you now train for a deployment, which is, you know, a different type of training. You're not being trained to see who's got guts. You're being trained to be good at your job. And so it's more of a teaching environment. Um, but it's very high tempo. Uh, I mean, like you spend a lot of time on the road and then you deploy. And, uh, you know, deployment is what it is. I mean, if you're going overseas to, you know, you know, do what you got to do overseas. And, and uh, so I think that realizing that the job is, is very demanding, but very different. You know, you're not a student, but you're actually a professional now. And um, it's a big jump. And it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's a heavy responsibility uh, that really does feel important while you're doing it. And you're surrounded by truly some of the most exceptional people I've ever been around in my life. And you're all like on the same team. It's a very empowering thing to walk into work and just see some of the most impressive people that you'll probably ever meet in your life 
all wearing the same uniform, all doing the same job. It's an amazing thing. Um, but yeah, high tempo, lots of travel. Um, yeah, it's intense. It's an intense life for sure. Yeah. So when, okay, you're, you're a Navy SEAL. When did you get married? Were you a Navy SEAL when you got married? No, so I met my wife, Amanda, when I was in college. And so she actually, we met um, when I had kind of decided that I wanted to be a SEAL. This was like immediately after meeting those two SEALs. And I've now kind of, I found my calling and I've really begun in earnest to train for going to SEAL training. And I was not anticipating having a girlfriend. In fact, I was kind of swearing off all relationships because this is what I wanted to do. But, you know, Amanda stole my heart and uh, she understood from the beginning that that was what I wanted to do. And it was pretty clear that I was serious. And so she really knew me from the beginning of this journey and was with me through all of training and through all the deployments and all the way to now. And she's in with the kids right now. And, you know, she's been through the whole thing with me. She's a very strong woman. Well, yeah, no kidding. Props to her. Uh, I, I cannot even imagine... Your, your daily life as a SEAL has got to produce so many challenges uh, that you don't ever expect. But then the challenge of maintaining a, a healthy, I don't know, I want to use the word quotes around the word healthy, but a healthy relationship with your wife and who's now the mother of your kids. And uh, what is the biggest challenge in that? Or what was your biggest challenge in that? Obviously there's communication. Uh, like there's just not an opportunity to communicate when you're deployed at certain points. And I, I think without a doubt, the, the biggest uh, hurdle for, and this probably actually applies much more broadly than just the field teams. I think really any, any profession that requires quite a bit of travel. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess and, I was going to say just military in general. Yeah. Military in general has this where, um, you develop a relationship that is, whether you want it to be this way or not, it doesn't matter. It just kind of is this way, which is it's built on lots of goodbyes and hellos. It's built on lots of time apart. And it becomes, you know, like you, your relationship is broken into segments that every time you're home, it's for a limited amount of time. And so you kind of enjoy the time you have, or maybe you don't, maybe you're fighting or whatever, but typically it's like, you know, you have this chunk of time, but you know, it's finite. It never feels like now we have a stretch of time together. It always feels like we don't have enough. And for years, I mean, really for the first five years of our marriage, um, I bet at least 50% of it, I was physically not with my wife and that might not even be close to accurate. We talked plenty. I mean, communication was good, but, um, I think that that's one of the biggest struggles is, is, and I think it's probably more for the, the person who's not in the military is you're kind of stuck waiting all the time. And that's, and whereas I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also waiting to see her, but I have lots of stuff that's occupying my mind and lots of responsibility and she's just waiting for me. Um, and that's a really hard thing for partners to deal with. And it's also really hard for me. And I'm, I'm looking at my younger self saying, shame on me, but coming home and feeling like it's all about you because your job's hard and it's stressful, right? But like, there's a different type of stress to your spouse where they've just kind of been abandoned. And if you don't respect that they have, they're sacrificing for you, they're, they're letting you go live your life, um, then shame on you. And I definitely did that. And it took some learning to realize that what my wife is giving me both in taking care of my children and then honestly looking after me. I mean, when I'm home, she, she takes care of me. You know, I'm, I'm, 
I needed to respect that and it took me some time to, but I think there's balance in our relationship now, but I actually think that's probably more because we spend lots of time together now. And so we get to know each other continuously and get to spend time together continuously, not kind of segmented. Well, kudos to both of you for, I mean, there's a a miraculous amount of self-awareness that there must be throughout that process. And uh, I mean, obviously people probably don't question uh, the commitment of a Navy SEAL, um, but God, it's, you know, not the word, use the word failure, but the opportunity to fail in situations like that has got to be pretty high and, and lofty there. But um, on both of your ends, I mean, that's, that's a testament to what you, what you saw in each other. That's, that's really amazing. Um, you know, kind of jumping a little bit around, I want to get definitely into elite meat here. I know we're limited on time a little bit, but it, did you ever struggle with imposter syndrome? And maybe not so much. You, you didn't really bring anything up that made you question yourself through buds or anything. But when you were deployed and you kind of mentioned it, where like training was training and then all of a sudden you're in, you're in the gig. And basically what you're doing is you're protecting your life and the, those around you. You're, you're, you're trying to live. You're trying to survive. Did you ever sit there and go like, man, I am – I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm capable. Am I, am I good enough? Did you ever have that moment? Yeah. And I think that everybody does when they enter into, you know, an elite fraternity like the Navy SEAL teams where you kind of can't believe it when you actually arrive. Um, you know, especially when the training takes so much time and you're really just surrounded by other trainees that the culture is, it's like, you know, you're surrounded by people that are your peers, like a lot of the time and you're struggling together. You're not really immersed in the actual like job side. You're just kind of in the training pipeline. And then when you get to a team, um, I mean, it's a culture shock for real. I mean, like the, my first, the first Navy SEAL I met at my team, when I walked in the door, obviously a brand new guy, suddenly feeling the weight of the trident on my chest, you know, feeling like I really was like, what am I doing here? I've done nothing. And our team that I was joining had just returned from deployment. And so they're like ragged and literally just arrived like weeks earlier from being in Afghanistan. And I walk into the quarter deck of the team and I'm feeling so conspicuous. I'm wearing my dress blues. They make you check in in your dress blues. So you totally stand out. And this guy who an IED had detonated um, right near him and, and blinded him in one eye. And he had shrapnel all over his face and he's blind in one eye. He's just like real jacked, intense looking guy with still had his beard. Um, and I walk in and like, he just looked at me and I look at him and I'm in, I'm like the, the newest of new guys with, you know, clean shaven, look like I'm like 12 years old with my silly trident and no ribbons on my, on my uniform, carrying my, my, my hat and my, my folder with my check-in papers. And this guy is looking at me who just got back from nearly being killed in Afghanistan and just wearing the scars on his face. And it's like, well, uh, <laughs> I'm part of your team now. You know, it's like, it was, it was very intimidating um, to do the, to be a new guy. I mean, it's, it's extremely intimidating. Um, I think that I was fortunate though, because my very first deployment, um, was to a war zone. And so I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to kind of immediately or as early as I could kind of, you know, cut my teeth as a new guy and go, you know, be in combat and kind of have that experience. 
And so that allowed me to come back from that and feel like even though there were literally so many people that had way more experience than me, um, I felt fortunate that I had gotten that experience, even if it was just on a very small scale. And I felt less like, I guess, an imposter. I felt like I had done the thing that I'd set out to do. Um, but that's also just pure luck that I got to go to Afghanistan. And so I'm grateful for that. But so the imposter syndrome is real. I think it's especially real when you get to a team. Uh, really, it's just the first time you deploy. Whether or not you go to combat, it almost is secondary. It's like you just got to do the workup, go deploy, come back, and now you kind of can catch your breath. And it's like, okay, I've been here for a little while. I've gone overseas with the team. I know what I'm doing. Um, so the, the whole process of feeling like uh, an imposter is kind of long. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think everyone just kind of has to deal with that. And I would also say that in even in training, I definitely had that. And in fact, in training, they want you to feel like an imposter anytime you do something wrong. And the way they do that is if you fail an evolution, you know, a test that you're doing, even if you've passed everything else and you've always been the best student in the class, it doesn't matter. If you fail something, they literally segment you from the class and they usually have you like stand in the corner or sit in the corner with your back to your class. And the people that pass the test get to like, you know, get their stuff on and kind of sit, you know, segmented from you. And so there's a whole element of reinforcing, like, you don't belong because you didn't pass the test. Now, granted, that's a, you have to be able to handle that and get over it. But everybody, no one, all human beings do not want to be singled out as not belonging with the group. And so in training, they understand that that is a way to test people's mind. And so anytime you screwed something up and everybody who's gone through SEAL training screwed something up, it's part of the process you had to deal with that at least once or twice. And so by the time you're dealing with imposter syndrome in a team, you kind of accept that that's part of the process. That's what everybody else has to go through. I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to deal with the anxiety and intimidation and just keep my nose clean, do what I got to do. And at some point I'll be one of the people that are in the veteran category. My gosh, I, I can't even imagine the, the internal conversations you have during those experiences, but um I want to parlay this into what you're doing now. Um, I think this is, I mean, obviously you being a Navy SEAL, I'm, I've always felt like I'm severely drawn to military personnel and those that have, have you know, reached a level of eliteness in the military. Um, but now what you're doing is you have a, you've, you're CEO and founder of your company called Elite Meet, uh, where you basically place these elite military personnel into elite jobs. Um, what, what drove you to start that? What, where, where did that come from? And um, we talked a little bit about this offline, how I've had a little bit of experience with like, I lost my identity from not playing hockey, albeit mediocre. Um, but I know that professional athletes struggle with stuff like this, where the mental health aspect comes in. Um, you know, you start talking about depression, addiction, anxiety, suicide. Um, how did that whole picture get put together? And, and where did that come from? So, um, I'll try to condense this. Basically, on, on my first deployment to Afghanistan, I was hurt along with a couple other people um, during an ambush. A grenade detonated near us and um, you know, nearly killed a few of us. We all lived. We all got out of there. Um, but I was you know, literally medevaced with my, some of my teammates from the battlefield to various field hospitals. Um, to Germany back home. Like I, I kind of was like ripped from deployment towards the end of it, like from the battlefield in a gunfight to suddenly in a hospital to suddenly home again. Wow. And um, yeah, so it was, it was, it was intense uh, for sure. 
and there was a transitional period there. But what, what came out of that was a discussion with my wife that we felt like, and it really was a group decision. It felt like we had made this decision together. It was like, you know what? I feel like my luck has run out. I feel like that was, that was about as much luck as one can possibly have to have lived through that particular situation. Um, Cause it really was a legitimate, like, you know, very close call with death. And so in 2014, I'm now back in the United States and I've survived this deployment and so have my teammates. And I made the decision with my wife that I was not going to re-up when my contract ended. And so this is 2014, my contract ends in 2018, but it was decided then, like, I'm gonna do another deployment, we're gonna make the best of this, you know, I'm gonna do my best, but we are gonna get out. And so unlike, Unlike a lot of people, I think that I was very set in getting out and it, and it was something that I was sure I was going to do. Um, so I, we had another deployment. It was, you know, uneventful deployment to South America training mission. And then um, I was assigned to a training department where I taught uh, diving, underwater diving. Um, and I knew I would have two years at this training uh, department and in that time, I planned to take the GMAT and go to business school because I had my college degree and I was going to go to business school, get a degree, an MBA, and go be a consultant at one of the big firms like BCG or McKinsey or something. And so that was my plan. And I figured that I would get out in 2018. It lined up with starting that fall and doing two years full-time program. And then I was on my merry way. And I really felt like I had lined up my transition plan really effectively. And um, you know, there wasn't an internal struggle about whether or not I was going to stay in. It was like, I'm definitely getting out, and this is definitely what I'm doing. So um, early 2017, I've been assigned to this, this training department and this diving, this diving training I'm doing. And uh, I found out that there had been, uh, or there was just an error, a little mistake that had been made on my actual contract that without me knowing it, it basically ended early. Uh, instead of it being ending in the in 2018, it ended like eight weeks from when I'm finding it out. So about a year and a half, a year and three quarters early. Um, and so I was called in and they told me, hey, here's the deal. You you either are going to be out of the military in eight weeks. And so, you know, business school would be off the table because I hadn't even taken my GMAT yet. Nothing's prepped. Um, or you can reenlist. And, you know, reenlistment wasn't on the table. And... You know, I was in a tough situation where my friends in the Navy were pushing me to re-enlist because I didn't have anything lined up. My wife's pregnant with our second child. I got no prospects. I got nothing. What am I going to do in eight weeks? You know what I mean? So it was extreme pressure to maybe stay in. And then when I was home with my wife, it was like, you better figure it out and get a job because we're getting out. We made this decision. This is unfortunate, but we got to get a job. So full panic mode for me. I'm like, I'm going to go find a job. Don't know what I'm doing. It was like kind of ironic that the amount of energy I'd put into thinking about my transition, it had always been connected to going to business school first and then, you know, recruiting out of that. It was never like getting a job short of an MBA, which was definitely short-sighted of me. But either way, that was the position I was in. And so I made a LinkedIn account thinking that that was a good way to get in touch with, you know, recruiters and other people that could maybe get me a job. And I put on my headline that I was a transitioning Navy SEAL and that I was getting out in, you know, seven or eight weeks. And just circumstantially, just by happenstance, I should say, uh, a guy by the name of Jordan Selleck, who I'd never met before. He's a former investment banker turned entrepreneur who lives in New York City. He was looking around on LinkedIn for transitioning military vets that he could support and help. 
um, he randomly reached out to me and asked me what I was going to do when I got out of the military in a few weeks. And I sent him like this crazy, like five page long response about how I had no idea what I was doing. And I'm, uh, this is what happened to me. I need so much help. I don't know what I'm doing. And he was like, okay. Yeah. So he, he jumped on and he's like, I'll help you. And it's what started with, you know, I'll help you get your resume figured out and talk about interview skills turned into like, Hey John, you know what? A lot of people find their jobs through networking. They just get, they get, they get to know the people that ultimately kind of refer them into their company or to somebody else. They know, you know, why don't you come to New York and meet some people in my network that you know, might take an interest in you, might want to help you get a job, that kind of thing. Gives you something a little bit more practical to kind of put your energy towards in this condensed timeline. And so I thought that was a great idea. And I said, look, I know a bunch of people that are getting out of the SEAL teams and other similar units, not necessarily in the next eight weeks, but in relative short order, that they should come with me and be a part of this. And so back in uh, 2017, we put together this networking event that we didn't have a name for it. It was just a bunch of special operators, Navy SEALs meeting basically Jordan's network in New York. And we got the Navy SEAL Foundation to sponsor it. And then also uh, Hope for the Warriors, another charity to sponsor it. And they basically paid to fly all these vets, 20 of us to New York to meet these professionals. And what followed was five of the 20 were offered jobs, two accepted their job and are still to this day working for a company called Resourcev in New York. Um, ironically, I was not offered a job because the people in the room assumed my job was running these networking events. Um, so that was kind of funny, but, uh, you know, so basically we just continued to iterate on the concept of bringing elite special operators and elite military vets and pairing them with professionals, but looking for professionals that would take a vested interest in them beyond the kind of obligatory, wow, that's a cool job or, you know, like actually looking at them as a talent resource like I would want to hire this person into my company and so we just continued to have these very highly curated networking events that has really blown up and now we have you know two years later and I'm running these events uh, all over the country and soon to be all over well the, the UK as well soon um, we have over 500 met veterans actually we're closing in on 600 um, our professionals are all over the place and it's a, a very robust exclusive job seekers network um, that right now is the talk of the town inside of special operations and in the fighter pilot world. Well, that is uh, absolutely terrific, John. Uh, I commend you for going through all of that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of adversity faced there and I'm sure a lot of uncertainty. Um, but I, I don't know, I got to imagine that some of your training had, it shows up in that situation as well. And I'm sure we'll continue to for uh, just having the confidence to carry on and, and carry through some of that tough time. But do you, do you see an, um, do you, do you have anything going on or does you, do you experience anything with like the mental health aspect of these transitioning military uh, personnel? Yeah, so I think that, you know, the underlying issue and why we're specifically working with special operators and, and elite veterans is something that you actually already said earlier, which was the sense, this, this identity crisis. You know, when you have this really rigidly formed identity like for example, Navy SEAL, you know, it's not just a job, it's who you are. When you leave that behind, it, it can be very, very difficult uh, to move forward in your life because you no longer have the thing that you kind of maybe took for granted a little bit, that it was just who you were and now it's gone. And so by creating this network that we, we were pretty aggressive in how we um, vet people to be a part of this. 
Um, it's definitely not like uh, you, anyone can join. It's it's very, it's, we only accept about 60% of veteran applicants to be a part of this. And, um, you know, we're trying to create a space where they're surrounded by their peers again, but on the civilian side, where the same kind of support and camaraderie and almost identity kind of in association and being connected to this group still exists on the outside. But more than that, you know, Elite Meet, it's a network that'll help you get a job, but it's also a support network for people that have effectively lost their identity. You know, they're leaving these elite units, and now what? And actually, recently, we've begun working with some professional sports teams as well, who have reached out to us because they've said, hey, these are very similar issues to what our players deal with. Um, there's a, definitely a stigma around helping you know, professional athletes because the assumption is, well, they have money, so they don't need any help. Or why should they get help? Because they have money. And I would say that it's, even if that was true, it doesn't change that they're going through a very similar identity crisis. Sure. And so we've actually spoken with the, uh, the New England Patriots. We spoke to some players and their team about this. And I think that uh, that identity crisis piece is huge. And it's something that our program indirectly supports or indirectly deals with by putting these people together and, and letting them support each other, which is something they're very used to doing because they did it in the military. Sure. Wow. Well, John, that's uh, I think you said you're 30 years old. That's that's a quite a incredible uh, decade there for you, and I'm sure there's plenty more on the rise for you. And um, I want to respect your time. And uh, this has been my man. You have got me feeling a whole bunch of different ways right now. This is really incredible. Um, before we let you go, uh, is there any way that any of the listeners, myself, anybody can help support what you're doing for our military? Yeah, I mean, so we are a network. We are a, you know, a, a job. We're an exclusive professional network. If you are somebody looking to hire um, elite talent that happens to be veterans, um, I definitely would like to talk to you. We actually have a whole team of people that interface with our employers and prospective employers. Um, there is an application process, but it's also something that we take a lot of energy in talking to the people even before they apply. We're really looking for strong matches with our veterans. So if you're an employer and you think that somebody with exceptional leadership and millions of dollars in, you know, training that, you know, is about learning how to influence people and speaking multiple languages and, le and learning new technology, you know, if, if that type of caliber person is someone you could plug into your business, which I'm sure you can, uh, reach out to us on our website. So it's, a, it's elitemeet.us. So it's not .com, it's .us, like United States, US. And there's a button where you can click if you're an employer, and that's how you can reach out to us that way. Um, if you're looking to give back and, and you know, either mentor or coach, come speak at one of our events, um, there's also a button on our website for mentors, and that will direct you to our head of mentorship, Brian is his name. Uh, and he basically manages the people that want to give back and that want to you know, speak to our, our veterans, and, and that's one way to do it as well. Um, and then also there's, you know, sponsorship. We have lots of companies that want to sponsor Elite Meet, uh, help us host an event. You've got venue space, you want to host a lunch, whatever it is. There's lots of ways to get involved. Uh, but it basically all funnels back to our website. So EliteMeet.us. And then I am on LinkedIn and on Instagram, those two in particular. Uh, so my handle on Instagram is John B. Allen 416 And then you can find me on LinkedIn, probably just search John Allen Elite Meet. Uh, and feel free to direct message me there. Awesome. I will be sure to link all of that uh, in here. Uh, it, it's funny. I, 
I follow both of your Instagram handles there, uh, and then your John B. Allen one. Uh, I find myself looking for your daily updates. Uh, your your daily posts are awesome. Uh, absolutely incredible. Makes Thank you. you makes you pause and think about uh, the life we are living, um, and then in, in both positive and negative ways. I mean, challenging yourself to be just a little bit better every single day, and and to realize that you are in, in a little bit more control than I think a lot of us want to admit. But um, John, this is this has been absolutely awesome. I can't thank you enough for your time. I, I know you had mentioned a little bit, but question is going to come. What does it mean uh, to live a life well done for you? Do the things that scare you. If you do those things, even if you fail, you'll be happy you did them. In my mind, whatever scares you, those are the things you need to go after. And that's, that is a life well done to me. And that's very subjective. Awesome. That, uh, what an incredible response there. Uh, John, again, thank you for your service. Thank you for what you're doing for uh, our service men and women. Um, and thank you for being a breath of motivation here. This is uh, quite eye-opening and challenging in the same sentence. And, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. Absolutely. You too.